LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Lombardo who joins us to discuss science fiction and the 2020 coronavirus crisis. Dystopian post-apocalyptic sci-fi has been one of the most prolific forms of popular entertainment in recent years. Visions of disintegrating societies, deserted cities and scattered bands of survivors struggling to salvage these shreds of civilization have horrified and haunted viewers everywhere. Today, in the midst of the great coronavirus crisis of 2020, billions worldwide suddenly find themselves living in a surreal and disturbing version of a small screen nightmare. But this is no zombie apocalypse or alien invasion. Instead, what we are dealing with is a pandemic of fear, confusion and ignorance in the face of what is in fact a familiar threat as old as humanity itself. As with many fictional disasters, official rhetoric about coming together has been met by populations driven apart and the disastrous fallout from our failure to deal appropriately with the current crisis will be felt for many years to come. Attempting to eliminate all risk for the sake of stability and safety is anti-evolutionary and can lead only to stasis and stagnation. In the best science fiction stories, however, we can find wisdom to help navigate these troubling times. And in the true meaning of apocalypse, a revelation or unveiling, find positive growth and transformation for the future of the human race. Hello and welcome, Tom, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, it's uh, really good being here, Greg. Uh, this is your third time uh, with us, Tom, and today we're going to be having a, a quite a very interesting discussion because uh, we're recording this, of course, uh, as if anyone needs reminding in the midst of the coronavirus crisis of 2020. It'll be interesting for anybody listening to this uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years time, you know, thinking back to how that all panned out. Uh, in any event, before we jump into our discussion, just for listeners who don't know, just briefly tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, yes, um, I'm the director of the Center for Future Consciousness in the uh, Phoenix, Arizona metro area. I've been a professional futurist for about 20, 25 years. My PhD, though, is in psychology. I write books about the future, about future consciousness. I have a very strong interest in write material on science fiction. Uh, I'm interested in the future evolution of the human mind. I was a college professor uh, for uh, 30 years and uh, was involved in the uh, initiative to teach wisdom at a, a college level to students uh, and a few other things. So I would say to get started, a way of perhaps summarizing uh, or at least getting started on our discussion would be to say that we're going to be looking at, and this is a quote from 
something that you published recently, the value of science fiction in understanding our present world crisis and more generally the value of science fiction in imagining and thinking about the future. Because for many people, consciously and unconsciously, what's happening at the minute feels a little bit like waking up in the middle of a dystopian sci-fi movie, you know, one of those typical walking dead type things or not quite post-apocalyptic, but certainly, you know, the world's been turned on its head and everything's a bit strange. And people, of course, are dealing with this in lots of different ways or failing to deal with it in lots of different ways. But you're bringing your quite unique uh, futurist and uh, your, your depth knowledge of science fiction to this as a different way of looking at it. Yeah, we can imagine that we are presently characters in a science fiction disaster novel. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it is similar to disaster novels that have been written in science fiction. Science fiction has written disaster novels about all kinds of different uh, uh, physical, natural, man-made disasters. In fact, lots of them about plagues, too, for that matter. And uh, so if one imagines that that's the kind of scenario that we're in, then what do these different novels that have been written in the past tell us about uh, the kinds of ways in which a disaster will unfold, possibilities. They inform us as to uh, how would it feel to live through uh, a, uh, a significant worldwide disaster. Uh, so I wrote an article, uh, actually did a YouTube to begin with, on the uh, value of science fiction in getting an understanding of what's going on, having some resources for figuring out how it would feel, and what do we do about it? How do we address it? How do we cope with it? Um, and there's lots and lots of different voices on this, of course, uh, but there's been lots of different science fiction novels about disasters, too, and lots of different characters in those disaster novels. Yes, I mean, indeed, the the history of science fiction is replete with uh, the sort of scenarios that, that you were hinting at there and the sort of things that what we find happening outside of our windows today are sort of vaguely reminiscent of. I mean, probably like from War of the Worlds onwards, really. I mean, there are so, so many to think about the Andromeda strain. If we think about uh, those that particularly involve plagues or, you know, diseases, Andromeda strain is one of the best known, Earth Abides, The Stand, Outbreak is a movie. Outbreak's a movie. I don't know if Outbreak was ever a book, and also Contagion was a recent movie. I don't know if that was ever a book. You've got recent ones, Severance, Station Eleven, Twenty Eight Days Later, I Am Legend. Even some of these zombie movies filter into this as well. So it's almost the not the entire history of sci-fi, but maybe since certainly since the Industrial Revolution onwards, there's been this strain. I think of like what if all of this came undone very suddenly? Yes, in fact. Uh if uh, the reader goes to my website, Center for Future Consciousness, and looks at the article, it's in the Wisdom and the Future Newsletter archives, I have a list in there of about 15 or 20 famous science fiction disaster novels that have been written over the last 100 or so years that I think are very interesting and informative. War of the Worlds, which you mentioned, is important and keep it in mind that in War of the Worlds, it's aliens who invade us, but it's an out-of-the-blue scenario. While everybody is going about their daily business and is calm and relaxed and feels as if 
there's no imminent disaster, danger afoot, then all of a sudden, boom, the Martians invade us. And a lot of people felt like everything was sort of relatively normal. And then in a very short period of time, the coronavirus hits us, boom, out of the blue. Now, people, of course, have predicted through the uh, decades that we could be hit with a significant global pandemic. But that's part of the scenario of science fiction disaster novels, which is that the scientists will usually say the comet is going to hit us. We're going to have a gigantic uh, upheaval in our ecological stability. The Martians are coming, but nobody believes them. And then, of course, when the comet hits, then everybody goes scrambling around. So that's one of the that's one of the elements in um, uh, science fiction disaster novels that out of the blue, the scientists say something's going to happen. Nobody nobody believes them, and then boom, it happens. Yeah, well, we'll get to some of the political dimensions of this uh, shortly. One of the interesting yeah. things about War of the Worlds is, of course, the Martian invaders are ultimately undone by something very small, not by human efforts, really, but by uh, bacteria. Um, right. The, the common cold. And in many ways, for a lot of people, they're, they're facing this vi- virus pandemic at the moment. And for a lot of people, and this is the, the, the mainstream ignorance about this is, is quite astounding. A lot of people are, don't even know really what a virus is. Uh, they don't yeah. understand that there's virus is generally not regarded as being alive. It has no, you know, independent life of its own. And they're they're looking at this thing as very much an alien invader. So in this the scenario we're living in, it's like the the coronavirus is almost like the Martians in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, uh, the, the the twist on it is that in the War of the Worlds, it's something at the microscopic level that helps us and defeats the enemy. But now it's something at a microscopic level that is the enemy and is invisible on top of it all. So part of the uh, uniqueness of this particular invasion scenario, we're being invaded. That literally, that's what's happening. Our bodies are being invaded and the enemy has been spreading out. But in this case here, the enemy is very tiny and very invisible as opposed to big spaceships or dangerous ray guns. But it's still lethal at the same time. And in fact, to put an extra little spin on it, a famous science fiction writer named Edmund Hamilton back in the 1930s wrote a science fiction uh, a story uh, in which beings who lived at a microscopic level relative to us enlarged themselves up to our level of reality and invaded us. So we could look to the sky and worry about the Martians coming, but all around us there are dangerous things that may all of a sudden come popping into um, uh, our presence and undo us in one manner or form. In this case here, we have viruses. Um, you also said something about the fact that people in general don't even understand what a virus is. Well, part of the problem there is simply that we have a strong anti-scientific element in the general population. How well do the, how well does the general population understand science? And science fiction involves scientific concepts. In this case here, we're talking about plagues. Well, what are plagues? How do they spread? Why is it that 
a virus can't exist on its own. What does that mean? What's the difference between virus and bacteria? Um, but uh, if we have a, a skeptical or rather ignorant attitude towards science, then it does take us by surprise. And maybe we don't understand what to do about it. Uh, and here we are, um, uh, uh, two months, at least three months, four months into the scenario now. You've reminded me of something very, very interesting, a, a central theme that runs throughout. It's one of George Romero's uh, famous zombie films, and it's the third of his famous trilogy. I don't know if these qualify as science fiction enough for you to take an interest in. It's kind of science fiction horror, I suppose. But in Day of the Dead, so there's Night of the Living Dead, uh, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. In Day of the Dead, the survivors of the zombie apocalypse find themselves ensconced in a military bunker underground. They have captured a couple of the zombies and the the uh, scientific elements down there are doing t- experiments with the zombies to try and see if they can be domesticated, can they be trained, can they be somehow neutralized. And the tension between the scientific community and the survivor group and the military element uh, spills over into violence eventually. The military are very intolerant of the scientific element. They, they, they want patience. They want to be able to see, analyze the situation, find out what to do. The military want to blast the hell out of everything. And for me, that reminds me of a lot of the uh, famous science fiction stories about disasters is that, that as a species, we seem to be good at defending ourselves when it's something, when it's a sort of uh, Independence Day type threat, if it's saucers in the sky. But when it's something you can't see, you can't smell, you know, whether it's a virus, whether it's bacteria, whether it's radiation, these are things that are all, they're, they're, they're almost so much more insidious in a way, you know, because you can't just get up and wallop them or just, you know, shoot them down. Yeah, uh, there's lots of different angles on the comments you just made, Greg. Uh, number one is you're going to find a lot of similarities between zombie movies and various types of science fiction. Zombie movies could be considered to be supernatural in their foundation, but they'll still have lots of elements in them that would be similar to, say, hideous invader, hideous alien invaders that come upon us and how we react to them versus how we react to zombies. And, um, uh, in I Am Legend science fiction, a science fiction novel, uh, there is a, um, uh, a certain population of remaining humanity that become like monsters. But that's due to, in fact, something scientific. I forget if it was a bacteria or a virus that infected them. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of overlap between science fiction, some science fiction and in horror movies. Um, and um, then you were after you were talking about the horror dimension, uh, there was uh, uh, something else you brought up. Oh, I know what it was. OK. Um, how do we react to an adversary? And you mentioned the scientific mind and you mentioned the military mind. And you could also throw in the political mind or the religious mind. There's going to be lots of different mindsets. Now, I remember in the um, movie, The Thing from Another World, the scientists wanted to study the alien. The military figures wanted to kill it, you know, get it out of there, you know. And in that case, the military figures come off looking like the wise ones because the scientists tried to raise new offspring of the, of the alien. Um, and, and foolishly, a bunch of them die because of it. 
so yeah, different people are going to have different approaches to this. I mean, well, how do you deal with a microscopic, invisible threat? Uh, and you can't, in this case here, use big guns to blow it up. You got to use something else, some kind of human ingenuity, some kind. And, it, and it's also got to involve science, whatever it is. I'm also reminded of the second in the Alien movie franchise, Aliens, uh, directed yeah. by James Cameron. And there you see the tension between the scientific and the military. And it's very similar to what you just said. The military, uh, you know, they get Ripley back out of stasis and eventually she's persuaded to go to this planet. And she's like, we're going there. We're going there to wipe them out, not to bring back, not to study. The, the corporate scientific guy is like, yeah, that's the plan, you know. And of course, the agenda all along is to weaponize or to attempt to weaponize the right. the alien species. And of course, one of the theories going around at the minute, you know, because of course, this is a field day for conspiracy theorists, but we know for a fact that uh, viruses and bacteria, sometimes very highly dangerous ones, such as smallpox and Ebola, are studied and worked on and, you know, cultivated in, in highly secure labs. So the kind of Andromeda strain a bit of, you know, there's an overlap once again between science fiction and science fact. Yeah, in fact, um, uh, uh, bringing up the conspiracy approach or conspiracy view of the present reality, as you recall, and a lot of the uh, listeners probably have uh, seen it as well, in 12 Monkeys... The movie, the, 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 uh, there's a character in there that releases a deadly, extremely deadly, uh, I forget if it's a virus or bacteria onto the world intentionally and wipes out almost all of humanity. So that was an intentional, um, uh, infect, uh, infectious action that he took there. Um, and then of course we, we, we have the time travel element that goes on in 12 monkeys too. Um, but, uh, for a long time, people have thought about and considered biological weapons of different kinds. And we've had science fiction stories about them. Uh, we've had ones in which something accidentally gets loose or intentionally is released. And, of course, we would have people with the view right now, maybe this was somehow intentionally released. Another thing I say in the article, by the way, and this is what creates part of the problem, is that when you have a disaster, you have many different voices, many different opinions, and many different interpretations of what is going on. And lots and lots of different groups have lots of uh, their own way of looking at it, and they believe, you know, this is what's happening, and this is how we should look at it. And so we have this um, a kind of riot of interpretations. There's not just one. There's many, many different ones. I was talking earlier on about, um, I'm just throwing this in before I forget, uh, George Romero's Dead yeah. trilogy. He did a little-known film uh, with a, uh, the theme of a bacterial agent being released and the containment efforts uh, that go on, uh, you know, by the, the, the military and, you know, the authorities in general and the effect it has on the civilian population. The film's called The Crazies. I don't know if you've seen that, but I, I'd recommend, I, I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone who hasn't. Yes. Um, obviously, you know, there have been lots of different types of stories written about this. And I, again, just to go back to one thing here is that 
uh, in a convincing science fiction or even zombie horror-like uh, narrative story, you're going to have lots of different characters who are competing with each other over how to address the problem. It would, it isn't as, it, reality is never that simple where, oh, it's an X and in order to deal with X, we do Y and everybody says yes, because it doesn't happen that way. Right now we have different factions with different interpretations competing against each other, pushing against each other, actually arguing with each other over how to deal with this disaster. That makes it especially messy. But in a good disaster novel, a good science fiction disaster novel, you'll see that. Uh, we're not going to end up agreeing on what the best way is to deal with this. The scientists in the military may not agree. The politicians may not agree with the doctors. The paranoids may not agree with the neurotics. God knows, you know. Uh, there'll be multiple voices. Uh, and that's part of the whole uh, tension and excitement, and I don't mean excitement in a positive way, but I mean the tension and, uh, and the agitation of the whole reality. There's people who say this is a good thing. It stopped us driving our cars all over the place so much. The air is cleaner. Um, my wife doesn't have to doesn't have to commute to rush our traffic every day. She works at home, makes it calmer. Um, uh, we don't spend as much money because you can't go into stores and buy anything. There's all these other, there's all these changes going on that you can interpret and some people have as positive things. Um, yeah, so when you come out of a disaster, you know, there's the idea, well, let's get back to the way things were, but there's also the idea, you know, maybe things weren't that great before, and maybe this is a good kick in the butt, and maybe this will get us to change our ways. Well, in, in terms of uh, the, the idea that I hinted at at the okay. top of the hour about science fiction as a way for people to frame uh, their experiences at the moment, on social media and just the in, on the interwebs experience in general, there's been a lot of people have been talking about, oh, I've been watching such and such a movie, you know, citing some of the ones that we've been talking about. I've been, yeah. binge, I've been binging on this box set, you know, whatever it happens to be, again, sci-fi, dystopia. And uh -huh. I'm sure that with, without having had a lot of conversations, detailed conversations with people, I'm sure a lot of them are seeing them differently now. And maybe it will help them process some of what's going on. Because for a lot of people, sci-fi is just chewing gum for the eyes. You know, it's just kind of like fluff. You know, it has little bearing on their lives. But I'm sure some people are looking at some of these stories now, some of these narratives, the characters, how they process what's happening around them and what's happening to them. And are yes. thinking about, you know, how, how has this got, this, maybe this is some kind of new relevance for my daily life. Yes, yes, of course. And science fiction takes you beyond the immediate here and now and the relatively normal. It pushes, pushes your consciousness out, away from that. And Arthur C. Clarke, uh, the great science fiction writer, even said that, you know, science fiction is really a dive into deep reality. It's getting outside of the narrow confines of um, uh, uh, status quo, everyday consciousness, and having to look at the big picture of things. So it might on one hand seem like escapism or fluff, but on the other hand, it's really penetrating down deeper into the nature of things. We're an island of stability in a giant ocean of change. 
And for a period of time, things were relatively stable. Now they've become unsettled again. But becoming unsettled is a normal kind of thing within the great panorama and history of nature. We're in a punctuated equilibrium state now. We're in a, uh, something significant could be happening. And it's relevant for us to see that. And you could see that through science fiction. And you could see how people deal with it through science fiction. Um, we might be asking ourselves, and I uh, just want to comment one last thing you said. We might be asking ourselves, well, what are the leaders going to do? What are the experts going to do? But part of the real issue is, what are you going to do individually? How are you going to make it through this challenge, this crisis? And in what sense could this be an opportunity for you to change individually. And I don't mean simply you survived the disaster. You come out better on the other end than you went into it. And that's part of what makes for a good science fiction novel, too. You mentioned Earth Abides, which is fantastic. A great story about uh, a plague and disaster and the remaking of humanity afterwards. Uh, that, that one I highly recommend people to read. Yeah. Yeah, well, again, that's something that, you know, how we can benefit i don't want to you know use any other word how we can take a positive from this is something that we will get to again before we, we close if if quantum theory is correct then the ground of reality is some kind of churning chaos from which the order that you and i and are this world that we're in for a short time the order that we're part of but it all then collapses back into that swirling chaos again so the the sea of chaos is the is the natural state I totally resonate with you on that perspective on reality. I, I'm not saying that I totally believe this, but it's highly probable that we are simply relatively persistent, semi-crystallized stabi stabilities floating on a bubbling, agitating, percolating foam of flux. And we freeze up for a while. We acquire this this stability, this material form. But the underneath of the whole thing is bubbly. And sometimes we forget that. Everything in our body is in a sense of vibration. We're controlled vibrations. Um, and so we get used to the fact that things are calm and easy. But then reality breaks through and it bubbles up. The volcano explodes. The meteorite hits. The bug gets loose. The mad scientist makes the crazy robot, whatever. If you allow for the philosophy known as idealism, which essentially is that the universe is mental, that all is within consciousness, and then mm -hmm. if physical reality that you and I appear to be part of, if that is the mind attempting to crystallize into form, uh, to use your word crystallize, then in the terms of like the long span of time, then we, we may be the universe, you know, we may be mind crystallizing into form at a very, very early stage. So therefore still very unstable. And it may be that trillions of trillions of years in the future that maybe material form as we understand it will be more stable. But there's no reason to think that, that we're it, you know, which is, I guess our lives are so short. I think a lot of human beings get uh, convinced that not only are we the alpha and omega of kind of existence, but that also we've arrived at, uh, if not at an omega point, then certainly at some kind of plateau where of, of stability. But of course, that's partly due to, as I say, how brief our lives are and also our lack of 
a sense of history and how things have gone before and also how uncommon this sort of stability actually is, which is something you mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm going to generally agree with what you're saying and add to it. Um, number one, we are part of a process of evolution. To think of ourselves as a final omega state or a, a, a or a perfected state is a highly misleading. We're on a journey. And part of what science fiction does is that science fiction pulls you back in time so you can see different parts of that journey, possibilities out there in the future, transformations out in the future. So people have a need for stability and there are relative, there is relative stability. I'm, for the moment, I'm staying Tom Lombardo and integrated and whole. And so are you staying Greg, Greg Moffat and integrated and whole, but you'll eventually fall apart. Uh, and so will I. And so will everything around me. Um, so overall, there's this continual growth and development and evolution. And where we're at right now is only a step along the way. It's nothing which is permanent and absolute at all. And that's something science fiction definitely reveals, that the transformational nature of reality. One thing about the trajectory of, of sci-fi stories, I mentioned earlier about how from certainly from the Industrial Revolution onwards, there were people who, yes, as much as they marveled at what was unfolding and the constant you know, discovery of new technological wonders and new, conveni- yeah. new conveniences, I just wonder if, if some... If, is it almost as a species and via some of these futurist thinkers in the past and writers, whether we kind of intuited some of the ways that we could get into problems? Because as early as 1909, you had, you know, The Machine Stops was published. And I, I've drawn yeah. that, I've drawn that book and that story to a few people's attention recently. And they've been amazed that, that something could be so prescient. So I just feel that, that for a long time, we, we, we're concerned, and as quite often happens, it comes out through fiction, and particularly if it's concerned about the future, it's science fiction, that, that we understood that um, there was a, a, a potential dark side to what was going on, that we would need to be careful, we'd need to be mindful in how we developed our technologies. Yeah, it, we need to be mindful and careful about everything we do, to, to, in, in a sense, obviously. Um and, uh, yes, the machine stops for being written in the early part of the tw- uh, 20th century seems exceedingly prescient. And um, there should be both uh, positive and inspiring as well as um, uh, uh, n- uh, nihilistic or fearful and apprehensive uh, science fiction visions uh, both sides of the coin are important. We have to have a sense of hope and optimism and a sense of capacity to improve things, but we also have to have a sense of uh, perspective on what the uh, what the consequences could be of doing this or the consequences could be of doing that, um, whether it's with technology, with the environment, whether transforming ourselves, which we can which we do in various ways also. So both sides of that are uh, are significant, uh, weighing the pros, weighing the cons, and feeling them, experiencing them in fictitious realities. Yes, and science fiction does that quite a bit. Um, so 
would it be good to go back to the way things were? Would it be good to change now? What are the different possibilities? What are the pros and cons? Now, you're currently, oh, by the way, this would be a good point to mention, actually, that uh, yeah, the I mentioned this is your third time on with us. So the two previous interviews yeah. uh, that we did together will be of great interest to anybody who's um, listening to this. People can find the links for both those interviews on the web page for this one. But you're currently uh, working your way through a series of books, uh, science fiction, the evolutionary mythology of the future. Uh, right. So you have a deep, deep knowledge and understanding of the history of science fiction in all its guises. I've read a lot of sci-fi, nowhere near as much as you, but my sort of overarching impression is that there's been more dystopias written than utopias. Uh, if we also count the utopias that, of course, turn out to be dystopias in any way, you know, like sort of Handmaid's Tale type thing and Brave New World, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, they're projected as utopias. Do you think that is an accurate impression? And if so, is it simply that we, as a species, again, we have a tendency towards drama? You know, we look at the look at the, the prevalence of soap operas and what have you. Everything has to be a drama. Nothing can happen without uh, conflict and excitement and you know whatever it happens to be, you know, tension. So is that just a species thing or is there a reason why these tales, these sort of cautionary tales or outright kind of warnings seem to prevail over those that say, you know, we can reach a point of thus far on, you know, unprecedented uh, harmony and balance um, as a species with our environment? Yeah, a um, couple of things on that. Um there are people who would say, and I guess I would agree to a significant degree, that more dystopias are written now than used to be written relative to utopias. That is, people maybe wrote more utopias before and less dystopias before, and then around the 1930s, 1920s, 30s, 40s, dystopias went on the rise. Part of the reason for that was that we had two world wars, and we had the rise of fascism, the rise of communism, the rise of other kinds of uh, authoritarian governments that uh, uh, seemed to indicate that even though we believed we were engaged in progress and things were getting better, perhaps we were still in various ways too primitive and stupid and screwing things up one way or another, and we shouldn't be so optimistic because look all the millions of people we killed in these wars. Uh, so we had a depressing time in the mid-20th century, which may have led to increasing dystopias. It's funny, though, that I was introduced to Brave New World, the novel, as a dystopia. And I read it when I was young and saw it as a dystopia. When I read it again, it hit me that you could look at it as a disguised utopia, that the, the leading character that r ran North America, he was the convincing one at the end. You know, do you want to be happy or, uh, or do you want to have your freedom and be miserable? Um, and that was a question he posed to the savage in Brave New World. So sometimes it's not that clear what's a utopia and what's a dystopia. But there definitely seems to be more of it. Uh, you're also correct in that dystopias will generate more excitement and greater special effects and more misery 
than will utopias. Uh, so you could have a much more exciting and dramatic story if it's a bleak one than if it's a positive, harmonic, harmonizing type of story. Um, that's there too. Uh, but we need our utopias. We need to be able to articulate positive visions for the future and not just negative ones because utopias and dystopias are reflections of optimism and pessimism as general psychological states about the future. And optimism and pessimism have self-fulfilling prophecy effects. And what that means is that if one anticipates things going wrong, that increases the chances that they will. It doesn't guarantee it, but increases the chances. If you expect things to go better, it increases the chances that they will. Um, it's not true that where there's a will, there's a way, but if there ain't no will, there ain't no way. So being optimistic and writing positive visions is a good thing. And we have a lot of the dark stuff now. And maybe we have a lot of the dark stuff now because collectively we think that the world is going to hell and we can't seem to figure out a viable, convincing, inspiring future for us. And so we write all these dark novels. Yeah, listeners can find a lot more on this in our interview on your book, Future Consciousness, about you know what, how our thinking can shape our future. I yeah. mean, it stands to reason yeah. to me and to you, but not to everyone. Now, of course, at the moment... Uh, as you say, there's a lot of um, negative noise around and we we're living in a, a culture of fear. Some people have argued, I'm going to have a guest on it in a, next week who's going to be arguing just this, that the majority of the 20th century has been dominated by a gathering culture of fear. We're erring on the side of caution because of fear. So we're not having expansive visions. We're not taking risks because we're afraid. We'd rather just know that nothing will go wrong or try and make... Nothing. Will, try to <laughs> yes, allow that right. nothing will go wrong, but also that nothing will happen. And so, yeah. right now, whether it's from the mainstream media, um, from social media, from our politicians, from economists and other people with this at the end of their their title, and, and even from the science community now on this, there's a, so much not only conflicting information, but a lot of negative stuff. And I think, and again, some people just say, "Well, it is negative, man." You know, but it, 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 that's true. But without context, I mean, what do you? What do you do with all this data, with all this information that appears to be overwhelmingly negative if you have no context, if you can't even process it to assess how bad things really are, then what can you do with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought of a couple things as you were saying all of that, and at the end there what popped into my head was Albert Rubito's classic 19th century science fiction novel called The 20th Century. And Rabita, as a Prussian science fiction writer, predicted that the news would become entertainment in the 20th century and that the news and media and high-tech media would merge together and, you know, people would be excited and entertained every day watching big screens showing all the disasters going on in the world. So today we find news and media, which highlights disaster and mayhem and trouble. And we're inundated with it. We don't get really that much of the progress that's going on along many different dimensions. You may or you may not be aware 
uh, what was it, two years ago, Steven Pinker came out with his book about how in many ways the world is actually getting better, but we don't pay attention to all the ways it's getting better. Jerome Glenn in the Millennium Project, which is a futurist organization, points out that three quarters of the fundamental measuring points for quality of life in the world are improving. Only about a quarter are actually going down. But we grab hold on to the negative stuff. The media grabs hold on to the negative stuff. People, you know, you could ask, why are people attracted to fear? Why are they attracted to the dark side? This starts starts to sound like Star Wars, you know, or something. You know, you know, why do we go look for the devil in things? Um, but Frankenstein, you know, one of the first science fiction novels, she went looking for the devil too, you know, and found it, you know, in her neurotic scientist who uh, ran away from his creation and caused mayhem and misery because he tried to play God. Um, yeah, so uh, that's going on too. Quite a few people I know who um, say they, they like to read sci-fi. What they actually enjoy is actually it's fantasy or is what was known at one time as science fantasy. So, for example, like Michael Moorcock. Uh, so it's a bit of a hybrid. Uh, and then yeah. when you look at what you might call hard sci-fi, a lot of people are, a lot, you know, for all the people who love it, a lot of people are turned off it because they think that it, it's in, it's engaging really just with science and technology and it's for geeks, you know, it's for Star Trek, it's for people, you yeah. know, Babylon 5 and blah, 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 on and on. Uh, yeah. But as you yourself mentioned uh, in your recent piece that you mentioned earlier, there's social, political and psychological factors at work in any disaster. And of course, we're seeing that writ large now. And yes. all sorts of every character that you can imagine in any other sort of novel, every sort of character that you or I or anyone listening to this can imagine in their daily lives, you know, the people they work with, the people in their family, um, all the sorts of characters that they come into contact with and interact with, it, to a greater or lesser extent, they are all represented as well, you know, so that the best sci-fi story is involving humanity has that human dimension and it's quite often what the story hinges on is is how that interfaces with whatever the unknown happens to be you know good or bad oh yeah yeah you definitely need to have good characters in your novel or else even if you have very deep scientific ideas or really way out technological ideas it doesn't work as a story what you got to do is you got to synthesize together as a good writer good characters, good psychology, good social interaction, that, that human dimension with the strange and the scientific and the technological. Good science fiction writers do that. And, in fact, good disaster novels do that, too, uh, repeatedly so. Um, so you, you, you have these different dimensions that uh, are uh, studied and uh, uh, worked out and thought through, um, in um, uh, classic science fiction uh, disasters, yes, for sure. Uh, science fiction is about the future of everything and pulling it all together. Further to what I mentioned earlier about uh, science fiction perhaps helping to guide people through their their thoughts and feelings at this time, whether they feel there's any direct analogs between their science fiction story they might be reading and what's happening, there's certainly... A lot of a lot of people are very unsettled and un unnerved about what's happening to their what they felt was right. the stability of society and the certainty that was all around them. And in the best science fiction stories that I've read, I would 
find myself putting the book down at certain points because I needed time to process what I was reading, what I was feeling, what I was understanding, you know, vicariously through the characters. And mm. the best novels do that. So uh, for critics of sci-fi, especially lazy critics of sci-fi, it was always like, well, yeah, it's not really a novel, is it? You know, it's not Wuthering Heights or it's not, you know, uh, well, you know, they name all the classic sort of novels in English literature and say, well, it's not that, you know, but of course, you can probably reel off examples of exemplary novel craft and characterization and every other dynamic that goes into the art of the novel in a science fiction context. So where I'm going with this is just that how it feels for the characters in a sci-fi film to live through triumph and tragedy, adversity, you know, all of the things that we experience in everyday lives, the, the characters there go through, even if the context is bizarre and alien and unimaginable to us, it's still a human reaction to it. Yes. In fact, uh, I would say that when, uh, when we, we look around, we should attempt to live with the narratives. Because in science fiction disaster novels, and just in science fiction in general, you often find wisdom narratives. That is, where the main characters facing something really bizarre, transformative, different, have to grow and develop as a person in dealing with that strange and bizarre reality. Like Ender, in Ender's Game and uh, The Speaker of the Dead. That's a definite wisdom narrative set in a science fiction contest, a context. And The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson is a great wisdom narrative of a young girl set in the context of upheaval and change. So there's lots of really good wisdom narratives. And when we think of ourselves, we think about how we might live a wisdom narrative in dealing with this struggle and with this challenge. And indeed, People who are judged as wisest in terms of their own minds and characters are people who have had to successfully deal with the extraordinary, with big challenges, with big crises. And so science fiction lays out big challenges, bizarre crises, and different kinds of realities, and people will persevere through them. And I also just want to mention... Is the one thing you said about novels. I always tell people, if you think science fiction isn't great literature, read Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Read A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller. Those two always pop into my head because those are great, great novels, great characterizations, great stories. And A Canticle for Leibowitz is about a disaster on top of it all. Uh, well, in that light, actually, again, a little quote from... Uh, I think it's some of your, your essay, certainly from, from you. Uh, psychological studies on the development of wisdom seem to indicate right. that wisdom grows through trauma, adversity, and transformation being successfully right. faced and assimilated into one's psyche. So from what you're right. saying about what we can, it, what we can hope to or aspire to take away from what's happening right now, um, this is like, you know, it's a teachable moment, isn't it really? Yes, it is. A teachable is a moment of learning. You know, this is a time to learn. When things are constant, when things don't change, you don't learn shit. Excuse my expression, right? Right. It's when things are new, when things are different, that you are forced into having to be flexible and change and grow and learn. Uh, so if everything were calm and taken care of, in fact, another great science fiction novel called, novel, not a novel, uh, a story called 
Mother by Philip Jose Farmer is a story about a man who has everything taken care of for him and everything is calm and peaceful and beautiful by this nurturing alien. And the man turns into a vegetable by the time it's over because we need adversity in order to grow. And so in this case here, we have adversity. Uh, how would it be, how would it feel if nothing ever went wrong? Our minds would die. Well, and that's exactly the scenario in some of the science fiction utopias that are actually dystopias. It's of, of stasis. Uh, you can think, yeah. you can think of uh, the time machine you know, with the, the Eloy, you know, how, yes. how, how hypothetic they appear. And there's, right. a, there's also, uh, one of the recent science fiction novels I read was Methuselah's Children. Oh, yeah. The, Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein. Of course. And when the, I won't give away the, the plot, but when the breakaway human species leave the Earth and search for a new home, one of the planets they visit is an apparent utopia where there's no needs, no desires. Right. There's no nothing really, but the, 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 the creatures there, they stay there for a short, pleasant time, but the creatures there are kind of pathetic, really. They just lie around and nothing happens. That's, that's the sort of stasis that is anti-evolutionary. And you mentioned earlier the concept of, uh, punctuated equilibrium that's part of evolutionary theory and the idea there for people who don't know is that you know we're coasting along and coasting along and then suddenly something occurs and it's, it's uh it marks quite a step change in the evolution yes. of a species or of an ecosystem whatever it happens to be and there's a lot of evidence that that's happened in the past so it's yes you, you can make parallels between that and certainly the potential for our species of moments like the one we're living in now yeah, like, uh, for example, I would recommend uh, Greg Beer's uh, Darwin's Radio for a good look at applying punctuated equilibria to science fiction and the future evolution of humanity. Great book, Darwin's Radio. And um, you, you do bring up something about utopian visions. H.G. Wells realized this a 100 years ago. You can't have a realistic and viable utopian image that is static that stays the same. You have to incorporate into it the notion of continual growth and transformation and change. That is, if you imagine the perfect world, heaven, and nothing changes, it becomes hell. It's, it's, a, it's a death. So um, uh, we don't want everything perfect and harmonious. Um, we don't ride on harmony we ride on chaos and we achieve order and order is great and too much chaos kills you and all of that but you have to incorporate into an ideal vision the idea that it's going to keep moving and changing and growing if you don't then it's not a utopia it's anti-human it's a cell that you're stuck in yeah and of course a lot of movements especially environmental movements and, and some also who uh, overlap with um, ideas of reforming economics and uh, also, you know, in the area of energy and resource use, they talk about stability and stasis, uh, like the idea of a resource-based economy of uh, 100% sustainability, the idea that things can be just managed on a, on a fairly static basis or certainly on a basis where inputs uh, match outputs right. and you know just like that idea but 
to my mind anyway, that would be fine and dandy as a stable background from which to move forward, if you see what I mean. But it's it's not kind of an end in itself. Because no. I have this, and I've talked about with many different thinkers and writers about their perspective on this particular idea, but I've always felt that, and you know, this is certainly a, a, you know, a human-centric way to think about things, but I include the rest of life on this planet in this, and indeed life in the universe, that I've always felt that we're supposed to be doing something. And by doing something, I don't necessarily mean consuming and building and going places, but that life isn't random and that there is some kind of natural teleology. So the idea of everything just being managed on a stable basis, as I say, find background from which to work, but not an end in itself. Yeah, and I wouldn't even agree with you that it's a fine background in which to work because I don't think it's realistic or good. <laughs> that is, I, I will often say to people uh, to get a rise and to get a debate going, I'll say that sustainability is a is a um, misconceptualized ideal, and it's misconceptualized in that it is unrealistic and it'll never work and it misses the fundamental evolutionary quality of reality in human existence. We don't want sustainability. What we want is uh, thoughtful, wise uh, evolution and flourishing. We don't want to stand still. We don't want to destroy things, of course, but we want to be evolving ourselves as opposed to maintaining ourselves. And reality will always come in and kick you underneath. I went to the biosphere when they first created it down in um, near Tucson, Arizona, which was supposed to be a self-contained, relatively stable inner environment of uh, several environments. And the damn thing wouldn't stand still, literally. It kept transforming on on the engineers. Nature will not stand still. The only way way we make something stand still, keep it stable, is to put it in a cage. And it still won't even quite work that way. So, uh, I mean, that's another whole topic, the topic of sustainability. Um, uh, uh, But we're back to the theme about change again, back to the theme of transformation. Now science fiction gets at that. And, And right now we're in a period of transformation. And a lot of people really hope that perhaps it's enough of a jolt that it'll change things for humanity at large instead of just simply trying to go back to the good old days, which the good old days weren't all that good anyway. Sustainability is, I know you say it's a separate conversation, which is is true and it could be, but it is very relevant because it feeds into the big question, which right now is what are we going to do next, you know? Where do we, we go? Gonna- from, yeah, you know, is it going to be 100% sustainability? You know, you say no, that's fine. So that's all part of the, that, that's what that's we need, that's what we need to work out. Yeah, that's part of the discussion. Yes, exactly. Um, it, but I, I, I think it would be a, a, an unwise move to try to go back to where we were before, uh, the, uh, Corona apocalypse. By the way, apocalypse, which gets used to mean a great disaster, originally meant a great enlightenment. And there's the disaster produces, uh, there's an enlightenment and disaster. So right now, this could be seen as an opportunity for enlightenment, for seeing the picture better. Uh, And I hope you don't try to go back to where we were before. There's a number of 
trends and tendencies that were already in place, of course, have been for, for decades, certainly since the latter years of the 20th century, but I'm seeing making a resurgence now. Uh, those are such things as, you know, localism versus globalism. You know, the idea that we'll get back right now is a good argument for more local production, local consumption, local everything, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sm- smaller organizations, smaller entities, you know, which are less, you know, that are more stable, apparently, depending on who you talk to. Uh, there's the idea of uh, the retro future, where simpler technology, uh, you know, less complex technology, less breakable technology, more easy to understand technology from, you know, tried and tested could be redeployed as we move forward. Oh, some You might feel that's a bit atavistic. So, and then of course, there's a lot of people as well who are also saying, essentially, to sum it up, I hate my job. But I wish I could get up tomorrow, you know, Monday morning at 6 a.m. to commute to my job. So a lot of people desperate because I mentioned they're so unnerved and so unsettled by all this. They do want to get back to business as usual as quick as possible. So there's those competing trends, some of which I think are just out and out negative, like the just the instant return to business as usual, which actually is absolutely impossible, utterly undesirable. And then there's some other well-meaning tendencies and trends which are trying to say, okay, you know, we do need to move forward, but, you know, maybe... Uh, the, the phrase I used in an email to you was maybe that the scale of the human enterprise needs to be scaled, uh, you know, reduced, scaled back. Yeah, uh, this is a ongoing um, uh, process. Um, it, it's dawned to me a long time ago. There are many, many different theories of the future. There are many different spokespeople with different preferred visions for the future. And the future unfolds as a kind of Darwinian dialogue with competition and cooperation among those diverse points of view. So what's going to come out of this is going to be an effect of this interaction among all those different points of view. Um, uh, with nature, of course, giving us kicks in various ways along the way. Now, I wanted to ask you about the future of uh, space exploration. The reason being is because something right. that's of particular interest to me, and the reason somebody listening to this might be saying, "Oh, well, why is he suddenly introduced this?" But you know, for example, uh, one of the big trends lead- just prior to this pandemic uh, in the press was uh, it was so like a new space age. There was a dawning of a new space age with all these uh, commercial and other, you know, intergovernmental players coming in and people right. like, people like Elon Musk uh, and, and others, you know, uh, others getting involved and a lot of very, um, exciting, um, hyperbole about what may achieve, what might be achievable in the future. And uh, Elon Musk wanted a million people on Mars by 2050. And whatever you feel about that and however progress is being made. So I just wondered, there's, there are already people who are, you know, consigning things like that, if not to the history books and certainly to the, Putting it on the shelf, and I don't. I want to get your perspective on it because there are there are other people who are saying, you know, now is um, not the time to take developments like that off the table. Yes, we do have a, a very immediate issues to deal with right here, right now, but we're shutting down economies worldwide. But we we shouldn't forget about our future. I suppose is a simple way to put it. Yeah, um, I'm definitely pro space technology and space exploration and its continued development. 
I think that one thing global disasters should teach us is that here we all are living on one big spinning ball of rock, but that's it. It's important for us to spread out at least some level of spread to other locations or else we're just entirely vulnerable here. Disaster novels and science fiction point out that the right circumstances could just knock out all human life or most of it on the earth. Okay, So we need to spread. We need to find a way to spread. Secondly, it's a positive growth image. Thirdly, we learned a lot about the earth and the ecology of the earth by going out into space. What satellites have done for us in the monitoring of the earth and seeing the earth. So I think that um, part of the innovative push in the future should not be to back off from space exploration and colonization, to get out to Mars, whatever, uh, and however many people that would be, to get back out into the moon and to keep, keep that going. That was that, of course, has been one of the big dreams of science fiction, and continues to be a big dream of science fiction. Some people would say we shouldn't be doing that; we should focus on here, right around this. But the fact is, here, right around this, is all we're all just simply right here on the Earth, and getting out there will give us a better chance of surviving, given a disaster down here, and will give us a better understanding of down here. Obviously, you know why I'm asking you this, because I, was, I sent you an article that I'd written. There was no doubt in my mind that for some people, the idea of moving off planets or the idea of radical enhancement technologies for the species, whether they be, uh, you know, merging with AI or transhumanist right. ideas, whatever, that these for some people were a way of projecting, a way of rejecting deeper psychological issues would first need to be resolved before any of these new ideas could be successfully explored, in my opinion. So it's like, don't try to sort of graduate before you've done the study or however you want to put it. So Right, 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 right. Um, and I think that we would be, obviously, much more successful in our movement out into space if we were more collectively together. Yes, uh, exactly right, yeah. Yes, we would be much more successful at it. But at the same time, how long do we wait for that? I mean, you could say, hey, we're going to just take our problems from here and transport them over there. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I mean, Europe didn't get its act together before it decided to move over to the Americas and plop down over here. And we made some progress in doing that. We did some new experiments. Um, I, I, I like... Uh, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy, because in there, they do a new experiment with human civilization on Mars. It's very realistically portrayed. Um, and even the Martian Chronicles in its own um, way has that same notion. You know, we didn't quite get it right down here. We still haven't quite got it right, but maybe if we try to do something a bit different over here, a bit different over there, we may make a step forward in a positive direction. And if you think we're going to get have to be perfect down here before we go out there, maybe it'll never happen. Maybe it won't. Uh, uh, if the meteorite is going to hit and we better get off of the planet, we'll come together fast enough, no matter how neurotic we are, 
and get the hell out. Yeah, at least get ourselves someplace else. Uh, at least some humanity someplace else. What was that movie that came, just came out? Um, the one from the Chinese science fiction writer, Wandering Earth, was an interesting movie. Uh, the one who did the three-body problem, and they made a movie out of the Wandering Earth, uh, and they had to move the Earth, <laughs> which is not the first time that's been done in science fiction, you know, just to move the whole Earth. <laughs> well, I guess... In terms, in the light of what you just said, one of my concerns about the current situation, and there's, of course, there's a lot of speculation about this uh, in the media at the minute, and uh, people from all corners commentating, is the what the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis will be in terms of you know politics and economics and society and science, and the, implica- right. the implications that might have for our future development as a species. And I feel that as much as as you just alluded to, that we, if we were psychologically in a better condition collectively, we would do better with sort of huge efforts like, you know, off-planet exploration, that if there is any dystopian tendency to authoritarian control, that tends to shut that down. We need to have competing, exciting, competing visions of the future. People saying, you know, what about this? And someone else saying, well, maybe, but what about this? You know, so like more people working on the project so we have more chance of success. And I think if, mm. if people emotionally and psychologically and even physically feel very controlled and very shut down, then their future consciousness is shut down as well. And it becomes about right. survival and they, they go down the hierarchy of needs and we could find ourselves taking a backward step in a big way. Yeah. Something that I bring up in my book, Future Consciousness, is that it seems to me that the most important factor to focus on in order to create a better future overall for humanity is to evolve ourselves mentally and in terms of our ethical character that we need to focus more on the psychological evolution of humanity and not so much on looking at gadgets and material um, uh, supports. Not that that isn't important, but not so much of an emphasis on it and more of an emphasis on the psychological, develop wisdom and future consciousness and courage and optimism and other uh, 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 human qualities. And so I don't disagree with you. That is critical. And I think that um, in our uh, preferable future, we uh, should evolve psychologically uh, uh, with much greater vigor and um, focus. And that will make the economic, the ecological, the technological elements of reality more uh, uh uh, balanced and manageable and, and, and sane and wise. We are cyborgs, but we need to be wise cyborgs. We are ecological beings. We need to be wise ecological beings. And I think we are creatures of outer space. We live in outer space, and we just need to be wise with it. We need to get better with our minds on all of that. So that would be the good psychological kind of, that would be the good utopias or the positive utopias for the future, not a world that's calm and peaceful and everybody agrees, but rather a world 
in which our minds have gotten better and not just our appliances. I couldn't agree more with your sentiments there about individual development, personal development. Like you said at the top of the hour, what are you going to do? What are you going to be once we move beyond this? And whether the future of the species is something like Arthur C. Clarke's childhood, childhood's end, where we ultimately cease to be physical beings, the point is that we're clearly on a journey somewhere. And like a lot of the classic sci-fi that you mentioned earlier, there are classical values, actually, like heroism and risk-taking in there that are very, very valuable. And I think inherent to us as a species that are not very fashionable at the moment in our culture of safety and our culture of fear. But these are things that we should not, I think, be ashamed at all about cultivating within ourselves at this time and as we move forward, because those are the things that are going to make a difference. Just seeking safety and uh, stability above all else is is like a form of death, really. Well, it's very low on Maslow's hierarchy, if you believe in Maslow's hierarchy. But in fact, uh, when you look at Maslow's psychology, basically Maslow said there's two different kinds of human motives. There's the motives that center around stability and the motives that center around growth. Both of them are factors in the human psyche, but the stability motives the need motives are on the bottom of the hierarchy. The actualization growth motives are on top of the hierarchy. And we need the growth side as much as we need the stability side. But people want stability. And stability gets connected up with fear, too, of course. You know, fear, people could be fearful of change. Um, so, um, you know, with, if you take, if you believe in Maslow's psychology, then clearly we need they have that growth dimension as well as the stability dimension. Yes, and that, is, as I say, is my concern, is that people may be tempted now, maybe for, for very obvious practical reasons, to hunker down and to look to, you know, survival, you know, what they require in the moment. And, you know, especially if they suddenly find themselves that they no longer have a job, no longer have an income. Um, right. And, and against that background, they're already feeling emotionally and psychologically fragile because everything's been shaken up. But right. it's down to some of us at least to offer different ways of thinking about this and different visions. Yeah. Uh, because that's how we, that's, that's, that again, we're b right back to being in a science fiction novel. That's how if the species gets through any of this, that's how it gets through. It doesn't take a hundred percent of the species to make it through. It just takes enough to make a difference, you know, because each one of us is like a cell within the brain of humanity, you know, and that however little we might feel at times and however ineffectual and what we say and think doesn't have an effect, it does. And it clearly does have an effect upon your own particular life. The first strength of future consciousness is, in, in my mind, is self-responsibility. Taking responsibility for your own future and not relinquishing it to external forces or figures. If you can believe that the future you're going to have is going to be a consequence of what you do to a great degree, then that is very empowering and uplifting and actually is a very effective way to come at the future, just as a starting point. Uh, if we feel like we're victims, if we externalize our locus of control, uh, we can have an impact on our futures. We shouldn't simply feel like we're being buffeted about by forces that we have nothing to do to control and have an impact on. Self-responsibility for the future. 
that is a critical character virtue. And also, as you were talking, it hit me, there's a quote from Arthur C. Clarke again, another interesting one, which is, the reason why the dinosaurs went extinct is because they didn't have a good space program. So they didn't see the meteor coming, the the meteor coming. Now, part of the reason why we may go extinct is because we don't have a good future consciousness program thinking out ahead and not just worrying about the here and now because the future keeps coming at us and in the future there's all different kinds of things that could happen. There's the cartoon that's going around right now where two scientists are standing there and one's wiping their head and saying as this little curve comes down, uh, great that we finally got through this damn coronavirus, you know, epi- uh, pandemic, okay? And right behind the two of them is this giant mountain that's coming at them with the uh, caption on top, climate change. The critical variable that allows for our success now is our capacity to learn from the past and anticipate out into the future. And if we simply want to focus on the present, we're no different than frogs. And uh, we could live in the swamp, and that'll be fine and chirp every night, but that's as far as we're ever going to get. We have this ability to think out ahead, to remember the past, and that's very important for our success and evolution as a species. Splendid. Well, Tom, that might be a very good point uh, on which yeah. to end today. So now your books, um, a couple of which we've mentioned, they're easily and widely available all over the web and pe- people's favorite yeah. sources for books. But before we sign yeah. off, if you'd like to just share details of your website, uh, anything you're working on, anything at all you'd like to put out there. Yeah, uh, as again, as I said, I'm the director of the Center for Future Consciousness. My website is, in fact, centerforfutureconsciousness.com I just finished up volumes two and three of my history of science fiction Uh, volume two is the time machine to Metropolis Fritz Lang's movie Metropolis volume three is Superman uh, to Starmaker I've just started working on volume four now, which is going to be the golden age, the silver age, and the new wave. So uh, I'm working on that, uh, and uh, I keep uh, doing um, uh, interviews with various people and speaking engagements on both science fiction and future consciousness. And the two are interrelated. They're connected together in my mind. Wonderful. Well, once again, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Utopia Utopia Planet of your wildest dreams Welcome to Utopia Where all your needs are catered for Anticipated Calculated All your wants are monitored program computer formulated we know you will be very happy here nobody has ever complained yes but we always encourage making utopia love welcome to utopia 
welcome to Utopia. 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 